Our text this morning is found in John chapter 12. It's here printed for you in the bulletin. Uh, as we read together, I want to remind you that at Redeemer, we believe this is God's holy and inerrant word. It is living, it's breathing. And so give attention to God's word. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. And so the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. And the next day, the large crowd had come to the feast, heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, and they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been done, written about him. The crowd had been with him, and when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard what he had done with a sign. And so the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. Father, we confess to you that we uh, remain in blindness as we follow the desires of our heart and the intents of our heart. But Father, we are grateful that you have given us your word uh, that is to melt our hearts, that is to transform our hearts as we ponder the realities that the word of God points to Jesus Christ that we see here in our text. Father, I pray that you would draw men to yourself this morning, men and women, boys and girls, that they would consider this, this king, this almighty king who comes to his coronation, not in a limousine, but on a donkey. Father, give us the grace to understand the person of Jesus Christ, that he sits at the right hand as God and man, ever making intercession for those who come to him. And so, Lord Jesus, we would see you this morning. And we ask that by your Holy Spirit and through your word that you would melt our hearts and that you would conform us to your image. And for those who don't know you, for the first time, they might begin to understand the realities of what you have done in space and time and would come to their God and their King and their Redeemer. And I ask these things in your name and for your sake. Amen. Uh, if you've grown up in the church, you, you know what day this is, right? Uh, this, is, this is Palm Sunday, the day that records the triumphal entry of Jesus. Uh, and if you've grown up in the church, perhaps uh, you grew up in a church uh, where they had processions, where children would begin the worship service by waving uh, palm branches. 
Historically, the, uh, the Roman Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church uh, would call the Sunday, Sunday the, the beginning of the Holy Week and the end of Lent. Now, what might not be known is why we call it Palm Sunday. I guess that would be somewhat evident, right? They're, they're palms. But when did we start celebrating uh, this? Uh, why do we celebrate this Sunday as a predicator to the next Sunday? We all know what the next Sunday is, right? Uh, the next Sunday is, is Easter. Now, let me tell you why I'm, I'm raising uh, this question. It's because in our tradition, in what we would call the Reformed tradition, uh, the Reformers who, in, in our view, recaptured the historic faith, uh, the gospel of grace, they did not look at days and seasons, but they looked at one day. Uh, they looked at uh, the Lord's Day. Uh, the day that Christ was risen on a Sunday and that we live our lives in a rhythm of weekly realities of His resurrection power. Now, what's been very interesting to me and is, uh, is a number of brothers of mine that are in our tradition have begun to move more toward preaching the calendar. And again, I'm not preaching a sermon on the polemic of why we would or would not use the calendar. In many, many ways, I think it's very, very advantageous to do that. Uh, in fact, in the Roman church, uh, who do have a high view of Scripture, you need to understand that about the Roman Catholic church, they've expanded the reading uh, in recent years from a yearly calendar to a three-year calendar for the simple fact that the criticism of, well, isn't there more to the Scripture than what we read continually in one year? Aren't we missing out uh, on the Bible and the, the whole teaching of the Bible? So they've expanded it. Now, as I've, if I, as I've discussed with many friends of mine, and uh, also those not within our own tradition who've moved this way, but other uh, friends of mine who are evangelical, who are of another faith, um, I see the advantage uh, to, to look at a rhythm of the calendar. But in my view, and what I think the Scriptures teach, is that there is one day that we honor, and that is the Lord's Day. And the reason that we're to have this rhythm, not so much in a yearly way, which again, I, I don't completely oppose, but have been convinced that we need to keep this rhythm because weekly we gather together to worship Christ who's risen from the dead. We know from the New Testament that this day was set aside, Sunday, the day that Christ was risen, so that we as believers begin every week in the reality of Christ's resurrection power. That self-denial is not something we do at a particular time of the year, but it's something we do every day. For it's in death there's life. That there, it's in weakness that there's strength. Not to mention that what we are to consider is not our own self-denial, but to ponder His suffering on our behalf. His submitting to the will of the Father on our behalf. And through our union with Jesus Christ and His resurrection, 
for what He has done on our behalf, we think of every day as resurrection day for what God has done in our lives and is doing through our lives in His resurrection power. Now, I've done a lot of study about this lately because I always like to know if, as your pastor, why would I or would I not do something? But what's interesting is you study the history of Lent, there's a good reason that it actually began because uh, 500 years after uh, Christ's resurrection, in the first several centuries, the church is persecuted by Rome. It's underground. Uh, then under Constantine, the church is, um, is made legal. And so the church began to deal with all the pagans who were coming into the church. And because they were concerned about uh, the impurity of the church, because they were concerned that we begin to make everything uh, nominal and cultural, they began the Lenten season as a time of catechizing those who were pagans coming into the church before they were to be baptized. And though I appreciate that. Notion. There are no conditions to coming to Christ. The only condition is simply to the cross I cling. Nothing in my hands I bring simply to the cross I cling. That if I tarry till I'm better, I will never come at all. So as your pastor, every Sunday, I want us to consider what Christ has already accomplished on our behalf. That He has come and He's finished the work 2,000 years ago. And that He is calling a people to Himself. And when He calls us and we're united to Christ, we begin to understand His resurrection power in our lives. That we deny ourselves not to gain favor with Him. But because it's through our self-denial that we understand His power at work in us. And so this morning what I would like to do is I, I, I want to do two things and then give an application. And the two things I would like to do is this. I want us to see in our text as we learn about Jesus Christ and His reign and His kingship, which is of all of life, all the time, the first thing to see is that He is the sovereign King. He is the Lord. He is risen. And He sits at the right hand of the Father. And then the second thing that I want us to see, that in His earthly ministry and in this account that we have, the humility of Jesus, this King. He is like no other king. He is not like no other ruler. And until you put those two things together, your life will never, ever know the transforming power of the gospel. And then finally, I just want us to see what is the true nature of someone who's beginning to understand this gospel of Christ's work on our behalf. So the first thing I want us to look at is the sovereignty of this king. We see it in verses 12 and 13. It is in his triumphal entry. Notice what it says. Uh, the next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. 
Now, what's important to see is that all four Gospels point to this event, the triumphal entry of Jesus. What's important also to see, though, is that Jesus, for most of his ministry, had set aside until his appointed time his kingship, his reign. Jesus is coming. He is now acknowledging on his own terms that he is the king. Throughout the Gospels, we see that uh, Jesus was wanting to be made a king by the people because they had in their mind what they wanted as their king, what they understood to be their king. Jesus understood that. And so we have in several passages, but one particularly is in John chapter 6, where Jesus had fed the 5,000. And the people see him as a type of Moses. They say he is one who can provide for them, that he is sovereign. And so they sought to make him their king. And so John chapter 6 verse 15 says this, that perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to a mountain to himself. Uh, later in, in this chapter, when the Greeks come and say, we would, we would see Jesus. Jesus finally says at this point, after his triumphal entry, the time is now and the hour has come for the Son to be glorified. So now he's ready to present himself to the world and to the ages and to all of creation as the creator and the redeemer. And we see that he's no ordinary king. He's not like the kings that we want, the politicians who are going to save us. Uh, Politicians who promise uh, that our lives will be better if we elect them or if we get this particular king or get this particular person in office, then you know what? Our taxes will be lower. We'll have more money. And when we have more money, we'll have more things to buy. And usually those things are to buy for ourselves. But Jesus Christ is a king who comes to gain for us something greater. And that is to defeat our great enemy. And the two enemies in our lives that need to be defeated are sin and death. He came to be a different king. Casual reading of the gospel shows us quite clearly that Jesus is no ordinary king. That he is a sovereign king. And so while he's in his earthly ministry, he's demonstrating his person. That he is no ordinary person. That he is God in the flesh. All of us know this. If you, even if you're not a Christian today, you read the New Testament, you go, wow, if that is true, if these gospels are true, he has power over nature. He really calmed the storm. He told it to stop and it became still. He walks in the water. He has power over demonic forces. There's real evil in the world. And what we see 2,000 years ago is Jesus in his sovereignty coming two distinct natures in one person but casting out demons. 
We see Jesus in John 6 that we just uh, looked at is that he's able to take uh, a few loaves of bread and fishes and divide them and multiply them. He is sovereign. He is like no earthly ruler. But we also see not only a sovereignty through the Gospels, uh, but we also see it really this, this here in our text. Now, you don't see it exactly here, but if you go to Matthew, uh, we see in John that he's riding in on, on a donkey, but if you look at Matthew chapter uh, 21, Jesus tells his disciples to go. There will be a colt that will be tied, and the owner will let you take that colt. So here's Jesus Christ who's coming in, and he's coming in as the Lord of glory. He's coming in as the Almighty. And he's now revealing who he is in his coronation. He is now acknowledging what the world was wanting to acknowledge before, but he refused. He is now declaring himself to be the sovereign king. He is the sovereign Lord and this means everything to us. Listen, you, you can't just make Jesus up who you want him to be. Uh, if he's sovereign, if all the accounts of the Gospels and what men and women have died for for 2,000 years is true, you can't be indifferent about this. In fact, I would suggest that if what you want to do is take certain days of your life and say, well, you know what, I'm going to give up caffeine and alcohol or nicotine. Uh, I'm going to give up chocolate for a certain amount of time as some kind of response to the work and reign of Jesus Christ as sovereign Lord. I would suggest that he says, uh, you know, I want a whole lot more than that. I want you. And we're going to see later what, how, how people in this room will respond to this. Uh, how uh, people throughout the ages have responded to this teaching of the sovereign reign of Jesus Christ. It matters to us who are believers to begin to go, you know what, Lord, if you're really sovereign and you divide the loaves and the fishes, please forgive me that I'll give up chocolate, but I'm not giving up my money. To truly see him is the one who's the Lord God in the, in the flesh on our behalf. So he's sovereign. I, I know you've heard this quote before I move on uh, that C.S. Lewis gave. I think it's one of the greatest quotes, and I want to read it again. It's out of mere Christianity. I read it at my uncle's funeral, and I was reminded, I, I did his funeral a couple of weeks ago. I was reminded of this quote again. But, but before I move to the next point, let me read this again. What I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people have often say about him. Well, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing you must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. 
You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him. You can kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to do so. Is that not, this is an amazing argument, but it's true. That, uh, I mean, often I've had people say, well, you know, I really do think he's a great teacher. And I say, well, you've never studied his life. You look at his life and you, you just can't say, well, I'm going to be indifferent about this. You either have to say, this guy was nuts, or he's lying, or he has absolute right to my life. So he comes in, triumphal entry. Everybody else had been wanting to make him a king, but it's the king that we often want to make him. But he's coming as the king who will sovereignly defeat our enemy, not with a horse, not with a bow, not with a sword, not with political dollars, but in weakness. And so the second thing to say about our text is that not only is sovereign, but he's absolutely humble. This Jesus, he sits at the right hand of God. Well, where do we see this? Well, let me tell you, there's two ways I think that we see this. Obviously, number one, he's on a donkey. You know, all the, the reason I wanted us to read that long passage in Isaiah is for the simple fact that I want us to understand that this God that we read about in Isaiah where we learn that the nations are but a drop in the bucket. It is this God in the flesh, and his triumphal entry was not in a motorcade. It was not with Humvees or limousines. He comes on a donkey. And let me tell you, for some of you kids, uh, if you're trying to get in your image of uh, Uncle Fred's donkey out here in Oconee County, no offense to Oconee County people, but uh, it's not the great big donkey. It's this donkey that's about this high, almost like a Shetland pony. And here is God of the universe, your creator, sitting on this donkey with his knees up so his feet don't drag the ground. That's not what they wanted. But here he comes, the Lord of glory. And, uh, and he's coming on this donkey because ultimately it's going to be in humility and his being naked upon a cross that in ultimate weakness that he would save us. So he certainly said, him riding in on a, on a donkey. Can you imagine how some of the people must have felt like, man, he's going to throw out the Romans on that? He, he's, he, I'm not, could you kind of see him kind of waving the palm waves, please? But kind of going, I'm not sure about this. But where else do we see the humility of Jesus? And I, and I want us to really think about this because we talk a lot about humility and the <clears throat> There's true humility, humility, and there's false humility. You know what false humility is? Well, I'm not what I ought to be. 
I, I, I know I should... Um, I know I shouldn't have done that, and that's just terrible. And I could give you all kind of examples of false humility, but you know where we see true humility in Jesus not only riding in on a donkey? Do you know why he rode in on that donkey? It's because that's what the Scripture said he should do. I want to tell you what real humility is for us as Christians. I'm not speaking necessarily to you who are not Christians this morning. You know what real humility is? Obedience. Obedience to what? The Word of God. You know, a lot of people struggle with whether there was an original Adam or not. And yet, I would say the whole gospel falls apart if you don't believe in a real Adam and a real Eve. I'm I'm just saying it all falls apart. But man, there's all kind of fancy, fancy footwork that goes around trying to be able to explain this and that and the other. Why? Because we don't want to appear to be Non-scientific or not modern. But might I suggest this humble king who is God in the flesh, might I suggest that he believed in Adam and Eve? I could show you another passage of the scriptures, but let me tell you why I believe he, he knew, believed in them. It's because he created them. But Jesus is the second Adam. He is the true Israelite that everyone was always looking for. Who is the true Israelite? The one who is the son of David who would be obedient. And have you ever read the New Testament? He did this to fulfill Scripture. He did this to fulfill Scripture. He did this to fulfill Scripture. In the Sermon on the Mount, he says, not one, one jot or tittle will pass away till all has been fulfilled. And yeah, we have scholars after scholars who go, you know what, I'm not really sure if the Sermon on the Mount was written until the second century. It doesn't matter how much archaeology is discovered that says, wow, like when I was in college and I studied a lot of liberal theology, they would say, well, the book of John was written by the cult 150 years later, trying to keep the cult together, trying to keep Christianity and so they deify Christ. Until recently, they began to discover papyri that date back to the first century, John's gospel. They kind of blow that theory. You know what humility is? It's when you say, well, Lord, I don't know how I'm going to give my money because if I do, I got all these car payments and this payment, I got that payment. You know, I don't know how I'm going to do that. I'd love to help Scott back there, Scott, Bryant, and Karen. I'd love to help Scott. I love you. But right now, I'm so far in debt, I can't help you. And so the church languages, languishes. Uh, why? Because, uh, you know, we, we, we begin to look at what's around us. We look at the horizontal. Unlike Jesus, who was obedient even unto death, even crying on the cross, in his obedience, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is humility. And that's how we see his humility. That not only did he come in on a, on a, on a donkey, now that, that would be humbling enough, it certainly would be for me. But just a few days later, he's naked on a cross. Naked on a cross. Separated from God and separated from me. Now, before I go, kind of give the application here, I just feel like I need to say this. Um, 
Don't we all long for the hero in all the literature and the movies? Clint Eastwood and John Wayne and my husband, my daddy. Don't, don't we all long? Don't we all long for that hero? Who has this incredible combination of absolute strength and power and absolute love and mercy. The great, the great hero who, who's able to be severe on the one hand, always concerned with justice, and absolutely tender and tearful on the other hand. Tell me what child in this room doesn't want you dads to be that? What little boy or little girl doesn't want their dad to be a, hey, my dad, he, I'm proud of my dad. And you know, my dad, he goes out and he works two or three jobs to make sure I, that, that I get to go to private school. And you know, and then he comes home and he wants to serve me on top of that. He doesn't demand. Hey kids, isn't that the dad you really want that you don't have? Or tell me what woman really, if you're a single woman and you're praying about a man, is it not a man who is, you can respect a man who will work, a man who will make sacrifices, he'll lay his life down, a man who is able to take care of you and the family that you would have, and at the same time, a man who will be tender and kind. Let me tell you what, on my best day, just go ask my wife what, on my best day, I can be harsh. I don't want to be. <laughs> but you know what I'm thankful for? My wife understands that in this person, it's not me, it's in Jesus. But he's all powerful. And he's all tender and kind and graceful and merciful. This is the king we all long for. This is the one you need this morning. Your life out of control, you screwed your life up, you've had abortions, you've, you, you've, you've lived with several different people, and you've made a mess of your life. You're on drugs or whatever it may be. Jesus comes to you on a donkey in weakness and humility. He doesn't come on a stallion and force your hand and say, believe or I'll cut your head off. Now, how many of you are hurting today? And, uh, and you've got so many goofed up ideas in your mind about who Jesus Christ is because of the devil or bad thinking or some college professor or because your daddy used to be a preacher but ran off with the secretary, whatever it may be. But here he is in our text. Coming in and saying, I'm, I, I am your king. And I love you so much, I'll not only come in here on a donkey, I, I will give myself, my body on the tree for you. That in weakness and death comes victory. Nobody can make this story up. So the last thing, before we come to communion. How's that impacting us? No, seriously, what is that doing in our lives? It's the reality. Uh, I think you talked about it, brother, um, 
Todd, you're talking about gazing upon Christ to view him, to perceive him, to think about him. You know what? When you begin to think about this, it begins to transform our lives. Well, what is the application this here, uh, this morning, before we come to the Lord's, to, to the Lord's table? Well, you've got to see that there's lots of different reactions to Jesus. Um, for some, there's just complete indifference. There's just, you know, they're not even thinking about it. Um, in fact, do you know that when Jesus came in to Jerusalem, do you know that there were probably a, a million and a half people there that, that there? I don't think a million and a half were there. Waving palm branches. Matter of fact, most commentators think it was the people that saw Lazarus raised from the dead. The people that came to, to see Lazarus and to see Jesus, they're waving the palm branches. But the majority of the Jews, they, they were back home or they were in the market or whatever it was that they were doing. And man, I'm astounded how, how people can just be, and you grow up in the, in the South and you hear about this, but there's absolute complete indifference about it. You know, I was riding up yesterday, going home after I had finished the sermon, and I was up here at Creature Comforts, and I, and I drive by there all the time, and, and I, listen, I have no problem, going, I've been to Creature Comforts, okay, and I don't mind shooting a breeze with anybody, but you realize how many times I go by, it's, it is Creature Comforts up there, right, and they get this big glass, and you can see in, and people are inside, and they're outside, and I'm thinking, man, I wish I owned that place, but everybody's just chilling. Drinking beer, having a good time. Nothing wrong with drinking beer in my view, you know, but, uh, but, but, you know, never really thinking about things that really matter, talking about things that matter. And so not only is there, there's the indifference, but notice that there was also this hostility from the Jews, from the leadership, because he was about to take away their power. And they wanted the control, and Jesus is going to take it all away by him coming out of control for our sake. Now, I tell you, if you've never experienced any kind of hostility at all because of your faith, I don't know what your faith is. <laughs> but I know this, when I was at Vanderbilt University as a, as a chaplain, the first day I walked on, on that campus as a chaplain at Vanderbilt, all those chaplains knew that I believe that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life that no man comes to the Father but by me. Soon as I stepped into that building, and it marked me as one who was uh, closed-minded, <laughs> intolerant, and, and what was, uh, was amazing is the more I sought to, to love in them, the more it was, this teaching is intolerable. You are saying that Jesus Christ is the only way. I'm like, well, but he's God. And so there's hostility. There's indifference and there's hostility. And then probably the one that probably would have the most, the, the, the most application to us this morning would be this. The third reaction is complete disappointment in who he is. I mean, they are singing Hosanna, right? That, hey, praise, this is the king. He's going to come. And they have in their mind exactly what they wanted, what he was going to do for them, and it had nothing to do with their soul or their redemption. And so, 
they later said crucify him. Now, listen, um, how many of you, you say, well, I don't say crucify Jesus, but how many of you, seriously, are sitting right here today? Maybe you were strong in your faith at one time, but somewhere you got disappointed. You got, if you got disappointed, ultimately you're disappointed with him. And you know what? You're just completely moving away. You come to church every Sunday. You come, but he's never come, but you're not coming to him. And so you don't give your money. And so you continue to play on the fringes. You continue to go after these idols that never, ever satisfy, but rather destroy us. So what is somebody that looks like, what does somebody look like who's, who's um, really understood this king has come into their life? Well, I'll close with this. John Stott said, if you don't know who John Stott is, he is an Anglican. He recently died. He's an evangelical Anglican. And if you've never read his stuff, you ought to read it. If you've never heard him speak, you ought to hear him speak. You can pick him up on the radio or pick him up on tape. But he said that that the, the death of Christ is inextricably tied together in his resurrection with the believer. And he said in three ways, and I close on this. First, he thought, first off, he said, in our salvation, that there's life through his death. But he goes on to say, we must share in his death. The Apostle Paul in Galatians says, I am crucified with Christ in the life I now live. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You see, salvation, his death, means our death. Secondly, he said, it's inextricably tied to our own holiness. Uh, holy, and what is holiness? You, you're putting sin to death by his word and spirit. So the true believer is not one that's indifferent. They're not somebody that's disappointed. They're somebody who says, you know, Lord Jesus, I'm united to you, and now would you give me the grace to put, help me by your word and spirit, put my sins to death that squelch his life in me and squelch my testimony. So our salvation, our Christ-likeness or holiness, and the last thing he says is mission. Jesus said later in that text, unless a seed die and falls to the ground, it'll bear no fruit. Do you understand what Jesus is saying? That he gives his life, and in his death, the whole world is transformed. So it is with his people. Uh, it's It's in our death, to our kingdoms, that the kingdom of God comes through us. And the Apostle Paul says that he carries about in his, body, in his body the death of Christ so the life of Christ might be made known. What a wonderful Savior we have. Absolute sovereign and absolute humble. And he will come to you this morning on this donkey to say, Lord, would you have mercy upon me? Only you can change my life. But only you would love me if you knew me the way, if, 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 because if anybody knew me the way you do, they would not. I would encourage you to come to Jesus this morning because, ladies and gentlemen, I close on this. He's coming again on a horse in judgment. So come to Christ this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Jesus. 
who this morning would, would come to any who would come to him this morning and, and say, Lord, I'm heavy laden, I'm burdened. I struggle with unbelief. I struggle with hypocrisy. I struggle with the same sins that I've been committing ever since I've been a redeemer. Lord, I struggle with just the powerlessness, powerlessness of my own flesh to do anything. Would you come to Jesus this morning? Give your life to him and rest in him. Father, we thank you for your love and your mercy that is clearly depicted for us in Jesus. And uh, we ask these things in your name. Amen.